We do pray that you would give us eyes to see your glory as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms as we look at Psalm 83 together. Psalm 83, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? A psalm, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people, they consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera, and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane." Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. Well, I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's books, as I imagine many of you are. And I usually tell stories about uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, but I want to tell a story about The Hobbit, for those of you who've read The Hobbit. This is more of a kid's story. Hobbit is a fun, it's a fun book. And then The Hobbit, see someone who's read The Hobbit? Have you read The Hobbit? I think so. Some people over there. So The, the Hobbit is a book of adventure of perils and danger. It's about this group of dwarves, and they are seeking a great treasure. And so the wizard they consult for advice uh, tells them to go and find this hobbit named Bilbo to be their thief. And they go and they find him, and they take him with them through all of these perilous adventures as they, as they uh, barely miss dying uh, against goblins and spiders and all kinds of other mayhem along the way until they finally arrive at the place where they've been trying to get this whole time, which is this, this large mountain. For locked away in this mountain is this treasure, this great treasure, and it's being guarded by a horrible, terrible, terrifying dragon named Smog. The problem is they're on the very doorstep of going into this mountain and they even have what they consider to be a key, but they don't know how to use it. They can't get into the mountain. They had this riddle to help them along, and they've been trying to figure that out and solve it, but they just sit there day after day growing discouraged and distressed and discouraged, even though that treasure is so very close at hand. 
you know, so much of the Scriptures are kind of like that mountain. They contain great treasure, but often that treasure seems so close, but yet inaccessible because we simply don't have the key to unlocking and getting past the mystery so that those things that are inside actually become treasure in our lives. Let me give you one example. One example, uh, not all of the treasures are that complicated. Not all of the keys are that, campo, are that complicated. For example, one of the great keys is simply faith. If you have faith to believe the simple truths about the gospel, then it becomes a great treasure. The simple truths about the gospel says that, G- that God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners, to atone for their sin to die on the cross as a payment for the wrath that they justly deserved, so that those who have faith, believing that to be true for them, all of a sudden that gospel unlocks a great treasure in your life. Now, those are words that anyone in this world can read. They're not hidden in that sense, just like the doorway to get into that mountain wasn't hidden. But knowing how to make those words become something more than just words on a page and become treasure requires a special key. And while we think about faith as being one key, it also takes a matter of perspective. And the Psalms can often be like that. Psalms are not like so many of the other passages that we read in Scripture. Many of the stuff, for example, that Paul writes is very, uh, it's doctrinal in nature, it's, it's uh, it's, it's plain and straightforward. He's writing teaching. He's teaching you things that are true. Or you can read about the books in the Old Testament or in the book of Acts, and it talks about history. It's talking about events that have occurred, and that's somewhat easy to follow as well, and you can derive certainly principles and things from looking at that history. But the Psalms are a different genre altogether, and sometimes, as these are written to be sung, as this is poetry, we read them And we just scratch our heads and wonder, what on earth is the treasure that's locked away here? And some of the the treasure that's in some of these songs might remain locked away for a good long time until you yourself have been able to go through what is required in order to unlock the mysteries of the treasure that lies hidden behind. And I think as you read a psalm like this, it doesn't seem that complicated. It seems somewhat straightforward. Here's a predicament, here's a prayer, and here's, you could say, in some ways, the hope for outcome. It's a kind of a familiar pattern. We can read right through it. But it also seems a little bit generic. And so it's easy to read through without it really having a lot of impact upon your life. So I want to ask the question, what exactly is the treasure that's in this psalm? For it's here for a reason not just to be some generic poem that's interesting to read that describes some generic situation. So what is it? How do we unlock the treasure that's here? And what exactly is the treasure that's in this psalm? And I think the treasure that's in this psalm is simply the revelation of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is a treasure that is something that we don't often get to grasp. We might grasp an appreciation for God's love and His faithfulness or His grace to us that's extended through the, through the dying of Jesus Christ for us. But in terms of understanding the sheer weightiness of God, the sheer glory of God, that is a little bit harder to unlock. But I think that's what the treasure in this psalm is containing. 
So how did the psalmist unlock this treasure to get to this point? And that's what I want to try to walk through. Because oftentimes, to, walk, to find your way to the key to unlocking these great treasures, you have to begin where the psalmist begins, in a perilous place. In a perilous place. I mean, think about how often it is that you've seen someone, perhaps in your own experience, who grew up perhaps having everything that money could buy, and yet never learning to appreciate any of it. And you think, why is that? Whereas some people have very little and they appreciate it greatly, and other people have so very much and they don't appreciate it at all. One has unlocked the treasure that the other one still has locked. What allowed him to unlock it? Well, I think he understands what it means to be in a perilous place, in a perilous place. For example, one of the most popular, familiar parables in the New Testament is the story of the lost son, or better known as the prodigal son. And you know that story. The story where there is, there is a son who has all kinds of wealth, from, at least he lives under the house of all kinds of wealth because his father is a wealthy man, and he's very interested in that wealth, so he asks his father to divide the inheritance between he and his brother, and so the father complies, and he gives him his inheritance, and he takes it off, moves to a foreign land, spends it all on, on squander, squanderous living until he finds himself completely destitute, hungry, finds a job working for a pig farmer, which if you knew in a Jewish world, a pig is an animal that's considered unclean. And here he is working for the Gentiles on a pig farm, longing to eat the pods that the pigs themselves are being fed. That's how bad off he is. And it's at that point of low estate that he chooses to come back to his father. He's got this big plan worked out just to see if he can be one of his father's servants. And his father sees him a long way off, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, hollers for his servants to bring a robe and put it on him, his robe, his robe signifying that he's part of this family. He tells him to give him his ring, a ring that indicates he now has the authority of the father and of the family. Tells him to get sandals for his feet tells them to kill the fatted calf that they might celebrate this great return home. Now, as that celebration is going on, can you imagine the perspective of this young son who knows he absolutely squandered everything that his father had given him, doesn't deserve anything, and yet his father completely restores him? How much more does he appreciate what he has now than what he had before? And the great contrast, of course, is between he and his brother, his brotherhood never left, who's still out in the fields, who hears what's going on and is just angry and bitter. One of them has the key to the treasure, and one of it remains locked, for one it remains locked. How did he unlock it? He went to a perilous place. So what is the perilous place that this psalmist finds himself in? Because it is certainly one, it's looming, and you, you see it beginning in verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. 
Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. And you think about, if we just boil that down for a minute to realize, this is not some minor border skirmish. This is not something remote in the corner that you know, one family is battling for his field while the encroaching nation is trying to capture it. No, they're specifically conspiring together in such a way that says, let us wipe them out as a nation. This has national implications is the danger of the peril that the psalmist is writing about. It's a struggle for existence. And then we read about from where it's coming in the next couple of verses, verse, beginning of verse 6. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. So if you were to look at a map of ancient Israel and try to identify where these nations were, they are pretty much representative of every side. From the Philistines, for example, to the west, to the Moab and Edom, to the east, to Tyre, to Galeb, to the north. And as if that wasn't enough to top it all off, he mentions this other nation, Asher. And Asher is, is more commonly known as Assyria. Now, if you're a student of ancient history, you'll know that Assyria is is the biggest, baddest empire that really over, uh, oversaw the world in the ancient empires, in the ancient world. Their wickedness really had no bounds. When they wiped out other nations, their cruelty was well known. You, read, you can read about descriptions of the blood flowing in the streets, the different body parts that are chopped off and brought to one place to another. It's just a horrible horrible thing. And the psalmist is referencing the situation that he finds himself in. We are struggling for our very existence. It's being threatened, and it's being threatened from the nations on every side of us, buoyed or backed or strengthened by this evil empire of Assyria. So he's describing a terrible, terrible, perilous place. So if you lived in ancient Israel and you're facing such a time as this, what would you've been how would you be spending your days? I mean certainly you would be filled with a bit of trepidation, a bit of anxiety, perhaps even a bit of fear and despair, wondering when am I going to see the enemies lining up outside the, the city gate? When am I going to hear their voice screaming at us from outside? When do the threats begin to affect me? It can be very paralyzing, certainly. And some of you may have felt some measure of fear and anxiety over the past few years, whether it's from a struggling economy, whether it's from the pandemic and the fears that came about there. But you know something about being in a perilous place. What feelings did you deal with? What struggles did you face? How did you deal with it? Well, the psalmist has an approach, which I think is a natural step once you've found yourself in a perilous place. What do you do? Well, you pray. And it's often a very painful prayer. So being in a perilous place, we've got to get all these P's right, can lead you to a very painful prayer. 
A prayer that will somehow bring some measure of relief to your anxiety, to your fears, to your sense of despair. And I want to look at his prayer, his, his painful prayer, because he begins to, we see that in verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung from the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pasture of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forests, as the flames set the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Here's a prayer that we find at times in the Psalms that we wonder about. Is this the prayer that a Christian would pray, praying for the complete destruction of his enemies? But really what the psalmist is doing, he's praying for deliverance. He's praying and asking God for deliverance, but not just deliverance, deliverance in such a way that brings an adequate measure of justice to the crimes that are being committed against them. And so he, he makes reference to all these things that have happened to other, other kings, and many of those kings come from the period of the judges. So to familiarize yourself with what exactly he's asking, who were the Midianites, who was Sisera, we find them described in Judges chapter 4. Sisera was the commander of the army of the Canaanites. In his threat to Israel, we can read the very beginning of, chapter, of Judges chapter 4, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, who was the previous judge. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the people cried out, God delivered them. He says, I will draw out Sisera. I will draw him out. And he does. And this is what happens to Sisera, beginning in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah, who was, reigning, who was the ruling judge at the time, said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. It was indeed a great deliverance. But even so, what's interesting, the story goes on. The story goes on to tell particularly what happens to Sisera. And you think, I mean, isn't that the gist of the story? But no, this is the particulars that the, that the author of the Bible chooses to include beginning down in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. 
So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmona were also kings mentioned in the book of Judges that had aligned themselves against Israel during the time of Gideon. They too came to particularly cruel deaths. The Bible doesn't hide the details to show that judgment fitting their crimes against others was brought upon their own heads. And I really think that's why we have some of those particulars, is to show that while this is a very cruel thing, this was a very cruel man. So if you open the book of Judges, the very first chapter, we see this described explicitly in verse 5 through 7. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Think, why would they do that? Well, and Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he, tied, and he died there. So while praying for terrible things to happen to your enemy might seem harsh, the comparisons in this prayer show the psalmist praying for justice to come to them in a way that fits their crimes. In other words, it's a prayer that's seeking real justice. Real justice. For example, I used to remember being told in college when it was, the gospel was being described to me, and it was likening it to owing someone $100, but not yet having $100 to pay them, so you go and you offer to mow their lawn for them or to bake them cookies. And the judge, when he hears that offer, says, well, that's very kind of you, but you know, the penalty for what you've done is very specific, and you can't pay it with cookies or by mowing a lawn. You have to pay it with what it's cost. And that's what we see the psalmist understanding. The first principal thing, I think, for gaining perspective is what he's understanding is that the penalty for true justice has to fit the crime for which it is paying or for which it is executed. I think this is a big part of the path for coming to the proper point of view. For that's where we get to, the proper point of view to unlock the treasure that we find here. We go from that perilous place to this painful prayer to this proper point of view. Did you get all those P's? Took me a while to come up with those P's. How do you put them in P form? Anyway, the prayer doesn't end with the prayer for justice. It goes on, and it reveals something, I think, about where the psalmist is finally arriving. And this is what he prays in verses 16 through 18. Fill their faces with shame. Okay, we get that. That kind of fits already what's happened. That they may seek your name, O Lord. You see, it's, it's a means to some other end. 
Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, which is an interesting contrast that they would be dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Whose name is the Lord are the Most High over all the earth, that they may know that you alone are this. So the psalmist, in his opening remarks, wants God to not be silent. And it's easy to think that he's asking him to not be silent because we find ourselves in a perilous place, suffering greatly, and we want to, to grant us relief. But ultimately, that's not why he's asking God to not be silent. He's asking God not to be silent so that the whole world might know that God alone is God. That God alone is God. This is ultimately the perspective that he gains. Now, I want to do some work to get to this perspective. I want to point out some, some things that we learn about this that are important. Number one, the attacks against Israel are an attack against God. This is what makes their threat especially heinous. Remember, they're deserving these terrible things to happen to him. What was so bad about what they did? Well, their attacks against God himself. Look at verse 3, for example. They lay crafty plans against your people... They consult together against your treasured ones. And again in verse 5, for they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. You see, here he's showing this is the true crime. This is what's going on. It's not just that we are suffering. We are the collateral damage. They're really after the Lord and bringing Him down. For the Lord has linked His name with His particular people. The Lord has linked His name with this particular people, which, why, which is the reason why they are the target. Now, to put this in a little bit of perspective, I want to refer back to what we read uh, during the time of Moses. In Moses, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Deuteronomy is Moses' final farewell. He gives a big grand summary of all the things that they've gone through to remind them of who they are exactly, to kind of giving them them history, which shapes who they are. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he's recounting what happened during the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 10. And he says this, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So do you see what's going on here? At the Tower of Babel was, a, was a, another major fall of humankind that brought about the judgment of God. And the judgment of God was to scatter the people and essentially to disinherit them from Himself. That was, that was the sense. He's, he's putting them under the care of these sons of God, whoever they might be. I know we've talked about who they might be, but I don't want to get into that this morning. The, the, the idea is that He's taking them out from underneath His care and He's putting them under the care of these sons of God these other beings. 
But alone, he is... Um, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot in heritage. The very next chapter, by the way, this is setting the stage when you read about what happened in Genesis 10 and 11. It's setting the stage for God calling Abraham from this world. And he says, from you I will make into a great nation, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And you see why that's so significant, because he just disinherited all the peoples, putting them under the care of other so-called sons of God. But for himself, he's taking one man, one insignificant man, taking him out of his home and taking him to a place he's never been perhaps before in the land of Canaan. And he says, through you, I will accomplish great things. I'm paraphrasing there. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will be your God and you will be my people. So now forever, God has linked his name with Abraham and his descendants. Specifically, as he says, the, uh, uh, the, the allotted heritage, this, the people of, of Jacob, the people of Israel. So this nation of Israel is associated with God himself. So this is the context. Number two, the nation somehow ruled, influenced by the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 6, chapter, or 6, verse 12, are conspiring against the Lord. This is the story of the Bible. This is the unfolding story of all of history. I think this is exactly what we see happening here when it says these nations or these peoples, whatever it is, these various groups that are surrounding the people of Israel are conspiring together specifically to take down the Lord. Now, When you try to find a specific historical event by reading through the, the books of history in the Bible that answer the, the circumstances that we find in, chapter, in Psalm 83, you, you can't find one. Now, commentators have made a few suggestions of what they might find the closest uh, moments. For example, there's a time in the reign of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 that has a couple of those nations that have come together to conspire against Israel and do damage. There's another reference to a time in, in David's life, and other commentators suggest perhaps this happened during the Maccabean age, which was an intertestamental period. But the reality is there isn't any historical accounting in the books of the Old Testament that would explain this particular group of nations coming together to conspire against the Lord. So you think, okay, psalmist, what are you up to? I mean, one option is there simply was one that we don't have recorded. That's, that's a possibility. The other possibility is that he is describing, in essence, the, the overarching spiritual scene that Israel was constantly facing. If each one of those nations was governed by some spiritual power, if that's what we're understanding, the sons of God, then we understand that these princes of these nations have long sought to undermine God in His glory and in His power. And that's a story that continues to this day. And what's so interesting is this is, this is the key to looking back and understanding history. I just taught this past year a class to the high school students at Liberty on ancient history. 
And as we're reading through a lot of the material that's given to us regarding ancient history, it's, it's largely coming from a, from a perspective that, you know, God sometimes is mentioned if He's talking specifically about Israel or they're trying to talk something about their particular religions. But for the most part, they just talk about the facts of what happened with this people group and what happened with this people group, and here was a battle and here was another battle. And if you only look at it from the surface perspective, you really don't see much activity of God or any gods for that matter. But what the biblical author, the psalmist is saying, no, there is a vantage point that you need to stand, and if you're standing in the right place, then you will understand that all of these events that are happening in history are best understood by this fact that there is a grand conspiracy armed, aimed against the Lord. And the way in which that conspiracy unfolds is the attacks on His people because God has forever linked His name to His people. Now, if you want evidence of this, all you have to do is read the various accounts of how it is that Christians in different parts of the world are targeted and persecuted. Not just Christians, but any of those who would uphold the Bible. The Jewish people throughout the ages as well. Those people who would look to God's Word, who would consider themselves to be God's people, find themselves, one form or another, under attack because God has forever linked His name to His people. Now, the other thing about that is if the psalmist is praying for justice, true justice to happen, and he understands the nature of people, that he recognizes when he is praying for justice, he's praying for justice. If God's going to be just, He can't be arbitrary. He can't be, well, I'm going to, be, I'm going to issue judgment to this person, but not this person. When justice comes, it comes to all, otherwise it's not justice. So when God's wrath is going to come, when these wicked paybacks are going to come upon the people because of their wicked actions, how is it that God's people escape from that very same justice that the psalmist is praying for? And the key comes in the fact that God has linked Himself to His people. So whatever the people have to experience, God has to experience. Why would God allow His people to suffer so greatly? because they need to understand something about the nature of suffering, because God Himself would suffer on behalf of His people. The deliverance that God provides is not to be just to some and not others, it's to bring justice to everyone. The difference between Israel and the other nations is Israel has a God who has linked Himself to His people so that when that justice comes, God stands in the gap and takes it on the chin, as it were. And the only way that can be just, when we talk about Jesus coming and living a sinless life and then going to the cross as a form of justice, you think, how on earth is that just? Here's an innocent person being, being just, uh, judged for things that he didn't do. The only way that could possibly be just is if He has linked Himself specifically to His people. If there is no link there, if there is no connection there, if there is no intimate relationship that exists there, then it is not just. And the treasure to be found there is still locked away. I think that's the perspective the psalmist understands. God has linked Himself to His people. So while they may suffer, 
It's God's suffering that ultimately brings deliverance. And that is the way in which God puts on display His glory. That's the gospel, by the way. It's the story of the glory of God. When the disciples were sent to go and tell tell the good news across all the world, they were announcing not just that here's here's a man who died on the cross for the people's sin. They're announcing God is victorious. God has conquered. God is glorious. And His glory is on display in the resurrected Jesus Christ. So, if you're like the hobbits and the dwarves and you're standing at the mountain wondering how are we going to get in to unlock and experience this treasure, well, you have to go through what the dwarves and the hobbit did. You have to go through the valley with the great giant spiders and the goblins that want to eat you until you get to that perilous place of utter desperation and God opens your eyes to see that He has forever linked Himself to you and therefore these awful, terrible things that, that justice will bring if, as, you, as you look to see the heinousness of mankind will fall upon you. And when you understand that, only when you understand that that is true for you will that treasure be unlocked and the glory of God be on display. Otherwise, it's just words up here. I'm just speaking words that mean nothing. So my question to you is, where are you this morning? Has that mountain door ever been unlocked for you? Do you understand the treasure that is just waiting for you? Do you understand what it means for Jesus to be your Savior and deliverer and conqueror? Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for psalms like this that give us a different perspective on justice, give us a perspective on suffering, show us the great connection that exists between you and us, you and your people, you and those whom you have opened their eyes to see that we might rejoice with you. Father, I pray that these gospel truths would be unlocked for everyone here in this room, that you would grant them faith to believe what is true for them. In Jesus' name, amen.